All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. This is our final rants of 2020. We will begin uh, rants uh, season three in 2021. Uh, I'm going to go over some things and then Joe's going to go over some things and we'll introduce the most panelists we've ever had on rants. Uh, first, I want to say that the questions uh, and answers that come on rants are delivered largely based on the audience. So those who are attending live, the questions that they post, and Joe will get into how to post, that drives a lot of the conversation. Um, second, Joe and I pick guests just based on different topics that we think are important for the community to hear. And today we have three outstanding uh, behavior analysts, uh, three of the best in the world, in Dr. Christine Milne, Dr. Mm -hmm. Christine Milne. Uh, John Rafus and Jeremy Leaf. And so they will be talking about curriculum. Um, and I hope to talk about what good quality curriculum is and how it's created and how, um, how it can help individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum uh, disorder. Uh, third, I do, and I know Joe's gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway, just to highlight the fact is third, uh, we make all rants free. We're not hiding behind any kind of paywall here. It is all free. If you want to now, for those 19 people that I see in the in the audience, and that keeps growing, those numbers keep growing, uh, it's free. When you listen on the podcast, it is free. The only time that we charge is for the CU. So this is a free event. And so tell your friends, anyone can listen to it on a podcast. Um, and finally, we did not meet with uh, Jeremy. Uh, Christine or John prior to this to determine what questions we were going to ask or what they are going to say. They are all blind to it. And really, Joe and I didn't have the time in this last week to go over what questions we were going to ask them either. So this is kind of, as it's always meant to be, a discussion like the uh, five of us would have had at the bar uh, at the end of the week if we weren't in COVID time. With that, Joe will go over the remaining things that I had missed, but I felt was imperative to say, given some recent discussions about rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah, so um, to drive those questions, to provide them, there's two different ways uh, if, you're, if you're catching this live. If you're listening to this on the podcast, sorry, you missed your chance to ask questions. Try to catch it live so you can, can ask questions and get your questions answered by some, some wonderful professionals. Um, one way is through the chat box. Uh, you can send a message to the panelists. I don't prefer that way because it's just difficult to keep track because sometimes the chat can get flowing and we might miss those. Uh, the best way to make sure that your question gets asked is to ask it early and use the Q&A function. Uh, if you use the Q&A function, you can ask it anonymously as well. So if you don't necessarily feel comfortable with tying your name to a question, but you still want to ask that question and, and get some discussion around it, um, please use that so you can ask it uh, anonymously. 
Uh, like Justin said, uh, this podcast is free, always will be free. Uh, but if you want CEUs for it, uh, just go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, add the ramp to your cart. Uh, you can also listen to it there if you want to. Uh, add it to your cart and ask, answer the questions about the opening and closing words. And there you go. You have your, your CEU. Uh, I'll put it in the chat box for those that are catching this live. Uh, if you are listening to this via the podcast, the opening word is meaningful. Again, the opening word is meaningful. So with that, uh, do uh, would the panelists like to give us like maybe a one, two minute introduction to yourselves to acquaint everybody with who you are and, and what you know and what you do? <laughs> Any takers to go first? Ladies first. Oh, me. Okay. <laughs> Um, my name is Christine Melm. Um, I have been working at Autism Partnership for 10, 11 years, um, and then shifted over to the Autism Partnership Foundation. Um, so when I was working at 8P, I was, you know, a clinician, um, did direct mind therapy, ran social skills groups, provide some, you know, case supervision, um, as well as provide some consultation to school districts and whatnot. Um, and then I shifted over to the Autism Partnership Foundation, where I can conduct more research while I got my doctorate. Um, and so I just completed that uh, this year, Some a positive thing from 2020. Um, yay. And so I was able to defend my thesis one month before my baby came. So that was really exciting, really, uh, <laughs> really timed that out. So, um, yep, that's me. So um, I've been doing this now, I guess. What year is it? Oh, 2020. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing this about 11 years now. So uh, I think there's things I know, and I still think there's a lot I don't know. So I love to keep learning, and I love excited for some questions. Um, so happy to be here. Go next. Uh, my name is Jeremy Leaf. Um, I've also been at Autism Partnership for 11 years. Uh, started a little, like a month before maybe Christine. Um, but we are kind of in the same cohort. Uh, Autism Partnership, I wear a lot of different hats. I have uh, worked one-on-one -on -one with kids and still do, run social skills groups, uh, do consultations both nationally and internationally to, to families and to our other offices. Uh, but one of the main hats I wear is, is a curriculum developer with John, which is to say we help write curriculum and uh, set the program and curricula for uh, our students at Autism Partnership. Um, and like Christine, always trying to learn and uh, happy to be here today to help uh, answer some questions and maybe get some questions answered. So thanks for having me. And just to piggyback off of these two amazing professionals, um, I've been here the longest, I think. It's been 25 years for me at Autism Partnership uh, and I've loved just about every minute of it. Prior to that, I worked at a place back east called the May Institute, and that's where I cut my teeth on ABA and the beginnings of therapy for me. It started off way back east at the May Institute, which I consider a, a seminal experience in my life. And it gave me a, a bit of a, a jump into when I joined Autism Partnership and being a part of an agency back then when it was just forming um, was an incredible experience. Um, so those two experiences, May Institute and starting off AP as one of the first hires, first therapists, 
um, really kind of shaped me into the therapist that I am. Um, we really had to create our own um, curriculum back then. We had the me book. I know that's old school. Uh, and a work in progress had just come out in its draft form when I joined AP. Um, so we were basically working on those types of templates and trying, trying to create systems that worked for the kids that we were working with. Uh, and like Jeremy said, the third part of what has been really seminal for me is, is partaking in the curriculum developer role at Autism Partnership. I mean, pairing up with, with all the people that I get to work with, but with Jeremy in particular has been a real highlight for me. Um, and I think we do a, I think we have a pretty good eye for the, the curriculum that we help um, our kids benefit from. And it's, it's been really a fun experience for me to, to have that as a part of my, my, my life. So thanks for being here. I'm really excited to be here. All right. So one question that did come up already in the Q&A, which uh, I'll answer like quickly because I think it does come up sometimes. And then we can actually dive into the heart of the matter of curriculum is what is the difference between Autism Partnership, AP, and what and APF, Autism Partnership Foundation. Autism Partnership is a for-profit company that provides behavioral intervention to individuals diagnosed with autism, does school consultation and international consultations and legal work. Autism Partnership Foundation is a separate company, uh, a nonprofit company that does research and training. Just so for clarity and transparency's sake, uh, Christine is employed by Autism Partnership Foundation, although I think she does do some consulting work for Autism Partnership. Jeremy uh, Leaf and John Rafus are completely employed by Autism Partnership and not by Autism Partnership Foundation. Just in case people are wondering uh, live on the podcast or via talking about our podcast. So with that, I will let Joe answer or ask, not answer, ask the first question about curriculum. Well, and I think I, I want to just cast a wide net first before, because I feel like when you talk about curriculum, everyone tries to get down to specifics really quickly or like one specific case or context. So I'm just just actually curious because uh, I don't think I've ever talked to the three of you about curriculum more broadly or in, in this type of situation. Um, just like, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear curriculum as it relates to intervention? Oh, good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I, uh, I think one thing I think when I just hear curriculum, I, I think what's the package of programs or skills and behaviors uh, we're trying to teach a client? Um, and so there, I think there's a lot of raise of domain, lots of domains we can talk about, but just the broader curriculum to me is what are we trying to accomplish? What's, what are we trying to teach um, a client to do? Uh, and to me, that's the broadest range of curriculum. Yeah, I think um, the term curriculum too, it kind of, it also depends who's asking me the question because I find, you know, especially going into a lot of classrooms, um, sometimes when they hear curriculum, it's strictly refers to things like academics, um, cons you know, reading, writing, um, and those type of skills. And so um, I think reminding ourselves in terms of curriculum, it goes far beyond that. And curriculum can include things like behavioral goals. That is part of the curriculum and it shouldn't be considered something separate than, you know, academic curriculum. So that's probably one of the biggest things I like to clarify 
straight away, depending on who um, who I'm talking about it with. Yeah, and, and kind of a way to, to piggyback off of what that is, is I just think of sometimes curriculum is understood as a package, as a neat little book, and here's where you're going to learn about academics or social skills, or we're going to teach you about just about anything. It comes in a package, and you follow that curriculum, and hopefully by the end of that curriculum, if you bought it and bought into it, you're going to have a kid who's learned that skill. But like Christine said, it's it's entirely dependent on those middle grounds between the different um, programs in the curriculum um, that are important areas. Those are the teaching areas that I think we need to be focusing on. So that wide net you were talking about, Joe, I think the individualization is key when you take those curriculums and conceptualize them that way so that they benefit the kids that you're working with, where you're, you're actually trying to shape that curriculum into something that's going to benefit the kid as opposed to the opposite way of shaping the kid to the curriculum. I think to go off that too, John, I think um, being mindful, you know, I think a lot of times people, they see certain deficits, they come with, then they get set programs. Um, but shifting your mentality as opposed to thinking about the programs, we need to think about the objectives of those programs. And that's kind of how we should kind of um, more so you know, think about our curriculum in that way. What are our overall objectives and how are we using those programs to hit that objective um, rather than vice versa? You know, they're sticking in programs to stick in the programs, but kind of missing the big picture of what was the purpose of those programs. And so um, making sure that they kind of stay again, overarching goal, what do we want to do and what are the means to get there? Because as you said, you know, with individuals, um, you might run into some problems or some you know, difficulties and the way you're going to address that again is going to depend on that overall picture for that client. Yeah, I, I think that's so key. I mean, what Christine is talking about is underneath the curriculum, there needs to be a really strong understanding of the child. There needs to be that assessment piece. You need to figure out exactly what it is that the kid needs um, support in, what, what skill deficits there are, what behavioral excesses. And each kid's different, right? I mean, if you know one kid with autism, you know one kid with autism. And so the curriculum needs to be catered to the, to the, to the kids. And that, that assessment piece, that, that creating the objectives for each child is really the key of, of what I think Jeremy and Christine and myself do, at least at our different jobs is really try to figure out the kid and take all those those programs and the curriculum that we have access to and figure out where it's going to best benefit the kid. Without that assessment, it's just a waste of time, if you ask me. So I think how you guys operate in, in your day-to-day -day curriculum and curriculum development is different than many behavior analysts probably do in your assessment piece where you're not just going to like one set standardized assessment filling out the scores there and that determines your curriculum. I'm wondering if you three can walk us through the process of how you guys uh, do your assessments, your evaluations of John, what you were talking about is looking at the individual uh, child that you're working with to determine that most meaningful and socially valid curriculum. And that's open to Well, maybe I can start it off. I mean, I, I know when Jeremy and I came together and, and we were offered this opportunity to become, we didn't even have a title for it yet as far as our curriculum developer roles. Um, and 
what we decided was, you know, I think we've got a lot of great ideas. Um, I think we've got a lot of input that we can share with each other and our creative juices were flowing. But it really mattered much more that we get in and we watched the kids, that we got into sessions and watched our therapists. And sometimes the parents would go out to um, some of our family's houses and see how the parents interacted with, with the kids that we were charged with creating a curricula for. Um, and we'd just watch, would observe, would take in the information and we just kind of compare notes afterwards. It was a way to check and see if we were seeing the same things. I think that observation piece for me at the beginning of our, our, our course together um, really had a huge impact on how curriculum that, that we all helped develop came into, came into being. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously a lot of that comes with the observation and the assessment piece. And I, when I'm trying to design a curriculum for a, for a client, I'm looking at, Things like what are the client's strengths? What are they really good at? Um, so I can know what I can build on and also maybe eliminate is something that needs to be taught. Um, what aren't they so good at? I think that's obviously a very big one. What do they um, need to continue to improve on? Um, what are the, and then I'm looking at um, different domains. You know, I think we think about domains in terms of like behavior and learning how to learn, communication skills, social skills, play skills, self-help skills, and so on. And I'm just kind of going through a, a checklist in my head almost of, okay, they're strong in this, they're not so strong in that. Um, and then it's about prioritizing those, um, those skills um, and almost doing a task analysis uh, mentally of what needs to be taught first in order to, to teach the next piece. But to bring it all back to what we were talking about in the first question, it comes back to once I've done that assessment and gone through kind of that mental process is what is my long-term objective? Um, for the student, because that's really going to guide uh, the next steps. I think in addition to those two is, um, you know, obviously you try to run interviews with family members, parents, caregivers who are in contact with that student, maybe teachers, um, and try to get, you know, a, a good understanding of their history, if you can as well, you know, have they had um, intervention in the past, because that could have an influence on kind of how they perceive things here, right? You know, um, sometimes you might see um, a token board come out and they kind of get upset. So maybe there's a history with that token board and we might have to um, assess kind of how we attempt it in, in this situation. So um, I think on top of that observation, it's really important to um, interview parents and family members, get an understanding of what home life is like, um, understand kind of the, the the major issues that they might have at home as well. And how can we kind of tie that in uh, to what we also see um, in our own observations? Um, so is there an overarching behavior that we think could address both, you know, both settings? Um, and because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that, you know, we're also um, if we can't do it right away, eventually targeting those behaviors that help the parents at home as well. Um, and so that's, of course, a long-term goal, um, you know, when we're considering curriculum. Yeah, I just, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the things when uh, we first see a, a student at, at Autism Partnership, we're usually seeing them with the parents or the caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly one of the first questions is what's important for you or your your child um, to learn to be able to do um, and take our our, our designer curriculum around that as well. Uh, it doesn't mean 100% of the time we always think what they think is the most important is what we think is the most important. Um, 
Uh, but oftentimes it is. And when it's not, we can kind of have that conversation of why we want to get there too, but maybe we need to start um, somewhere else first to get to those long-term goals they want to get to. Um, but also just on what Christine was saying, obviously like interviewing the teachers and anyone who interacts with the, the client is paramount um, to get the full picture. But a lot of times what I like to do too, though, is um, if I'm going into a school, for example, is I want to observe first and then ask second a lot of times, because I think sometimes I've found in the past that I can get a colored, my, my um, assessment can be colored a little differently if I go in with some information um, and then I might be seeing things a little more biased um, one way or the other. So sometimes I like to go in kind of blank slate, get my impressions and then fine tune those based on talking to other individuals. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Like I, I like to, you know, correspondence check almost in a way, you know, because uh, you don't want to have that observation bias <laughs> once you go in there. Um, and I, but I think, you know, it, in the other way, there's almost a kind of an interesting assessment too. you know, you might get an interview with a teacher or a parent, and then you would observe, and you kind of maybe better understand maybe how they see a situation too, um, which could eventually influence parent training or staff training. Um, but I definitely agree to be very um, cautious when you do run interviews that it doesn't interfere with maybe your, you know, more, uh, you know, your own observations. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I mean, without even going in, it's not like we all come together and say, okay, everybody break. First, we're going to go observe. Then we're going to talk to people then we're, <laughs> and go for it. I mean, but yeah. I think we all agree that those are really important components of what we do. Right. Um, and without even saying it myself, the things that they're saying are, are tenets that I believe very strongly in. But I do think that there's a little bit of a, um, you know, you got to be careful. You know, when you do take that information in, it sometimes shows biases or it shows assumptions. And I think sometimes if we can be as um, objective as possible and observe, um, we can maybe find some of those areas that maybe it's not quite the reason why the kid's doing the behavior, or maybe that's not quite the right response based on what we're seeing, you know, that maybe we should dig a little deeper. And so then, like Christine said, that that correspondence check is you can get a feel for where the parents are in this understanding or where teachers are or other therapists or whoever you happen to be working with. And if we've got that information, I think that's really key because then it crosses over into possibly where we need to train people to help them understand how we're seeing things and how they're seeing things. Now, how do we come together and create a program that's going to benefit the kid based on what's actually happening there? And then one thing I think I'd be neglectful not to mention too is we'll have clients that are fully capable of telling us what they want to learn too. Yeah. And so making sure that we're listening to them um, when they're able to, what they want to learn, what they want to get better at, um, what's maybe not as important to them so that we're taking in their feedback when possible too. Because um, certainly there are times that um, our clients are quite vocal of what they want to learn and what's not so important to them. And that is obviously a paramount value. Yeah. I think something that both Jeremy and Christine referred to as, as we've been chatting is that you've got to have that big picture view. You've got to have that. What's our ultimate goal working with this kid? But at the same time, you've got to have that in that moment. What am I working on right now in order to get to that place? And I think that's a fun place to spend time because that's where a lot of people uh, that's where I've benefited the most. That's really helped me with my assessment skills is really getting into the nitty gritty as you're watching a child or as you're watching them interact with other people, as they interact with toys or activities, as they interact with you or the environment, 
there's little patterns in there that we need to tease out and figure out. Like Jeremy said, what are the strengths or what are the weaknesses that maybe we need to figure out how to plug those holes so we can move forward down that path towards a, a greater holistic child? And with the goal being, what's our ultimate goal with this kid? Um, I think that 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 combination of in the moment and with the broad picture of where we want to take the kid is ever evolving. But you've got to have both of those in your vision the whole time you're working with a family or a kid. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Otherwise, you end up playing whack-a-mole, right? You know, you, something pops up, <laughs> put in a program for that. Something yeah. else pops up, you put in a program for that. Or like there's that hole with the cracks. Um, but you only have so many fingers and toes that can plug those holes. So if you, uh, it's a really weird way to describe that. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but if, like you said, if you have a good understanding of, you know, are is there a general deficit? You know, is there a general strength? Can we use that and address that to build those foundational skills so we're not playing that game? Um, and ideally, you're strengthening. Um, if by strengthening one skill, you're ideally addressing 15 or 20 other skills, right? So yes. I think that's where it's really important to critical about what you're targeting. And I think that's where the science comes in a little bit. I mean, I've always considered what we all do and what the field means to us is there's part of it that's an art, right? But the other part of it is scientific. And so we're just taking data. You know, we're, we're checking to see under certain conditions, what is the kid doing? How are they responding? Are they doing it correctly, incorrectly, or not at all? And those little data slides in our minds are leading us towards the paths of, okay, narrowing down, which curriculum do we start with? Where do we build? And then can we branch back out after those initial foundational deficits are kind of worked on? This is, this is such a wonderful conversation. I could just sit back and listen to you three talk about this, right, for hours. Uh, I, I think one thing that I've, I found similar or a theme across all of you is, is how responsive you are to your clients or your kids or whoever you're developing curriculum for, how responsive it is um, to them, their strengths, their weaknesses, their preferences, uh, and various different contexts. It sounds just it, very compassionate and caring with respect to the people that you're trying to help. Uh, and I, we could go off so many different directions <laughs> with that conversation. Um, but one thing that got hinted at that I, I don't think is talked about a lot are, I've heard it phrases um, like um, big picture and small picture goals. Uh, and uh, I hear that a lot. And I don't know if that's terminology that everyone is familiar with. So I was just wondering if any of you could speak to um, like what might be an example of small picture and big picture and why it's important to kind of look at curriculum from that standpoint, if at all. That sounds like the perfect John question is. <laughs> but I'd love for you to get the ball rolling. <laughs> I, I guess I'll, I mean, I'll just start off and I'd love for you guys to jump in. I, I, I don't know if it's effective terminology. I think it's maybe a little bit too broad as far as, as a, as a, as terminology that we use, but I like it. I mean, I think you really do have to, Bring your experiences into it, whether it's with all the kids that we've worked with across our careers or our own life experiences. So you've got to have a pretty good understanding of what's the big picture and how does this child that I'm now working with going to fit into that big picture, you know? Um, and, and then the small picture or the little picture is, okay, if that's how I imagine and the data shows or the, the trajectory shows that's where we want that kid to be in the big picture, well, we've got to start here. 
with these five or six key components that they really need to get strong at, right? So you take that vision that you've got, at least as the way I understand it, of where you want that kid to be, where on on where you're most hopeful, where they're going to be most independent, where they're going to be most engaged with their lives and their environment and the people in it. And then where do we start? Because a lot of those kids, if they're just left alone, they're not going to get there. So we got to spend time in that little picture and spend time dissecting what's necessary and creating curriculum and, and switching phases and going backwards sometimes in order to keep moving on that trajectory. So that's the way I like to kind of think of big picture and little picture without getting too uh, terminological. Yeah, I, I think too, to go off that, you know, um, you know, we're, we're using the term curriculum and programs. And to me, like program, a lot of programs make up a curriculum. So like if you picked up the social skills group book, there's a lot of programs in there. And then if you selected a bunch of programs out of that for a client, you'd have a curriculum. Um, and so to me, it's like, if you're taking some of those programs, um, I don't know, take um, assertiveness, for example. Uh, I think that's a program in there. And so if you're looking at that, um, the small picture might be how you're teaching that right now in a session. Um, and then the big picture would be how does that apply? How are they going to, is that client going to use it in everyday life? Um, and making sure you're keeping an eye on both. Because if you're not teaching the little picture part, uh, well, then you're not going to get the big picture to go along with it. I'm going to go off of both of them now. Um, and, and I'm going to probably expand a little bit from there, too. So now let's say, you know, depending on your client, maybe big picture, I want them to be able to independently get ready for school in the morning or get ready for their job. Right. So then think about what are the skills they need to be able to do that? Um, are they able to identify the clothes that they have to put on one shirt, one pants? Can they find those things? Can they make those decisions? Can they stay on track? You know, those might be, you know, smaller um, increments, those little skills that we need to lead up to that. But they can't sustain attention for longer than 30 seconds, right? So that that's the skill on the moment that I'm going to work on. I need to develop sustaining on tension and staying on task, right? Um, maybe um, big picture, they're going to be in a gen ed classroom. What type of skills do they need? Do they have observational learning? Can they follow multiple step instructions, right? Maybe they're not there yet. Let's get even smaller picture. Let's break it down even further. So we start thinking about um, these little, uh, these programs we're running now, you know, might be receptive labels. You know, we're working on them getting items around the room. Big picture goal is that they're able to do that in a classroom. We'll be in the classroom, go over to the nurse's office and come back, right? So we need to break down those skills that are necessary to be able to lead them to that big picture. So um, I think those are, I'm just trying to provide more of like an example of like conceptually, that's kind of what we think about it. Um, and, and big picture may change and may shift. It kind of just depends on where they are now, right? Mm -hmm. We also, so you're kind of going back and forth, you know, you're zooming in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, reassess, you know, where we thought we were going, we may have to recalibrate and adjust. It kind of really just depends on how are they responding to um, what we're doing right now. Is it working? Is it not? If it's not, let's change it. Um, so uh, I think it's hard to really specifically answer that because it all depends. <laughs> I think sometimes when we're defining these concepts, we try to compartmentalize them, right? And, and mm -hmm. that's where the gray area comes in. I think 
you can't really tease apart those two concepts of big picture, little picture, programs, curriculum, individualization, curriculum. There needs to be, like Christine was pointing out, there needs to be a thread or common threads from where you are in the moment working with that kid on that pre-skill to get them up to being able to get dressed and know that they look good and they're ready to go to school. There needs to be threads that are connecting those. So once again, a really scientific term, threads. <laughs> but I, I think I speak a lot in analogies because I want to make sure that the, the material is accessible to everybody that could really benefit from it, right? Um, so those threads, if they're not there, then I think we're doing a disservice. We're not really focusing on on where we are now and how we're going to evolve, as Christine said, how we're going to move as the child shows us where to move and make sure that those things we're teaching still stay connected to the goals that we've got for them down the road in the big picture. Uh, re related to this, do you think that there's potential for people to get stuck in those little picture goals um, and potentially lose sight of the big picture because there a, a common criticism of um, you know ABA based intervention is uh, for a long time is did like robotic behaviors or decontextualized behaviors or teaching rote behaviors and I'm wondering if there's some connection between um, losing picture of the big picture goals or how many times I can say picture in one sentence um, and getting you know stuck in in the little picture because the more you you drill down the more I get I assume decontextualize some of those skills or those behaviors get. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. I think that is something that, you know, people can probably get stuck on, right? Like they haven't got past phase one. We can't move on to phase two. And if, if you're on and stuck on that for too long, sometimes we need to, again, let's stop, reassess what the overall picture is. Is this the way to get there? Um, I think one, um, a big benefit to having worked at AP and APF is that, you know, you have uh, colleagues that can also, you can help come and bring in, is there something I'm missing? Because sometimes having fresh perspective can kind of help, you know, I'm stuck on this. He seems to be, or he or she is stuck on um, a certain phase in programming. Um, do you think this is, are we addressing this the right way? Is there something I'm missing, you know? And so being able to find people you feel comfortable to collaborate with kind of could be a nice way to help jumpstart or maybe reassess what you're doing. Um, and I think uh, not getting, I think it's a balance, right? You don't want to drop things too quickly just because something doesn't work right away. Is it something that takes time or is it something that you're hitting your head against the wall and we need to reassess? Um, so I think, I, I think when you, when you're unsure, I think it's a nice time to try to bring in another professional that you trust with, you know, to help you observe and you can kind of discuss where can you go from there? Absolutely. And it's, it's such a fine line too. Of, um, when is enough time to let it go on and keep trying to teach it versus when maybe you move on to something else. And I think one, uh, one part of a dynamic curriculum is knowing that it doesn't have to appear in a checklist. It doesn't always have to be first this skill, then this skill, then this skill. And if there is taking far too long and you've determined maybe I can move on, and you have dynamic curriculum, you can come back to it later. You could teach another skill um, that might actually help support that skill they're having trouble on. And I think sometimes when you're stuck for so long, it might just mean um, the target you selected, they're not ready for. Um, and you need to go back and reassess uh, what you should be teaching um, and or how you're teaching it and come back to it later. But if you get stuck in kind of a 
a checklist or cookie cutter approach, um, you're not going to be dynamic enough to move on. So I think, you know, kind of when you're individualizing that curriculum, you're able to move past those type of things a little more easily. So we have some questions from the audience that are starting to trickle in. The first one is uh, directed to you, Christine, but then I'm sure Jeremy and John can answer. Uh, can you give an example of when it might be time to reevaluate? How do you know when it's the time? Thanks. I think that's a good question. Um, and uh, it depends on multiple variables, I would say. And I would love, you know, Jeremy and John's opinion on this as well. I mean, I might kind of look, how are the rest of programming for progressing you know is everything else progressing but this one skill that might be something that we need to reevaluate is the whole curriculum and your entire goal everything is kind of moving slowly you know that could be reflective in terms of the learning process maybe this is someone that you know requires a bit more patience in terms of acquiring new skills um so it's hard for me to give you know a, a direct you know time base or um, trial base, like after 100 trials, we should probably reevaluate. No, I think it depends on, you know, um, it's not an easy question to answer. I think it depends on, again, look at the, the progress of some other things you might be working on. Um, how is that going? Um, and, and looking at them as a whole, I know that's very vague way to describe it, but it's trying to have another way. Yeah, they would add to vagueness. I'm good at adding to vagueness. <laughs> I got a couple of thoughts. I think one is uh, evaluating your staff too and seeing like, are they frustrated? Are they burned out on that program? Because if they're not, if they're burned out and they're not uh, thinking through it critically and using clinical judgment, then they're not going to make as much progress as you can. So that might be one factor. Another factor is looking at the behavior of the client. Like, are they really trying and just, they're not, it's not happening for them. They're not learning that, that skill for whatever reason, or are they just not putting in effort necessarily and um, that might lead you but one thing is to really if you're in charge of the curriculum and when to move on is evaluating yourself and knowing it's like knowing yourself a little bit i know personally i tend to stick things maybe longer than others would and so um i know if i'm thinking a little bit longer and my tendencies to go too long then i might say to myself well i know my tendencies to go a little too long so maybe now is actually a good time to do it whereas other people might uh, cut and run so to speak a little too early and so knowing about that about yourself might say like, oh, actually, maybe I could give it a little bit more time. Yeah. Right. To add to Jeremy's real quick too, looking at fidelity, you know, like you were saying, sometimes staff can burn out, but also are they implementing it correctly? Um, and so making sure that you're providing enough supervision um, to ensure that this is actually being followed the way it's supposed to be followed um, could be another way uh, to evaluate stagnant, you know. <laughs> stuck being stuck on something uh, we've all had that feeling haven't we it's it's uh -oh. no fun but i think it's i think christine mentioned that you know there's there's really no rule about when you should reassess i, I agree with that i think that there's guidelines and for each kid it's a little bit different so that's going to frustrate a lot of people to hear fair enough um I mean, there could be some kids where like if Jeremy starts a new program after the first trial, he's going to know if he needs to make an adjustment where other kids, it might take a hundred trials to decide to, to make an adjustment, right? It really depends on the kid and it depends on, on what you're watching in your own assessment. And Jeremy highlighted some of those, those components of clinical judgment that are key to deciding as a therapist, as a clinician, when it's time to stop what I'm doing and get it reevaluated move on from it because it's clearly mastered or the kid has it and now I'm just pissing him off 
Or is this too big of a skill and I need to break it down? It's really about in those moment assessments that, that leads you to that, aha, we need to reassess here. And it might be immediately or it might be after several months. You just have to trust the press. One other, sorry, the more you guys speak, it reminds me of something else you may want to evaluate, just understanding reinforcement, right? If this is, um, if it is something that's difficult or new, are you providing reinforcement? Meaning, you know, is this student actually willing, um, we talk about items that they like versus items they're willing to change behavior for, right? Um, so I might even go as simple as that. Let's evaluate. Do we have reinforcement in place? If we know we have something that this student just would love and die for and they're still not getting it, then clearly, you know, we need to either break something down, reevaluate the program as well. So just another little variable to consider. And when it's you're such, stuck. A, such a great point, Christine. It's something I tell staff all the time is before we make any changes, are they motivated? Um, mm -hmm. Because if they're not motivated, let's start there and then see if changes are, are necessary. Right. We have another question from the audience, which says, how do you feel about reliance on typically used curriculum and curriculum assessments? Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, I think uh, one of the problems with um, typically utilized curriculum or reliance on it is sometimes they tend not to be dynamic. Um, they tend to be a cookie cutter approach, so to speak, uh, where you just check off a box and you move on to the next one and you just keep going. And once you've checked enough boxes, then theoretically the client's done and you've taught them everything they need to know. Um, and I think something that Autism Partnership, we really pride ourselves on is being dynamic with the curriculum that just because if you took the social skills group book and taught every program in that book, it doesn't mean now the client has all the social skills they ever need. Um, it just doesn't work that way. It needs to be done in the order that's meaningful for the client. Um, and everything in the book isn't every social skill. Um, there's more that need to be written and taught. So that would be my two cents on that. I think another, you know, thing to consider is, you know, it relies on some of those assessments. Well, how are, so I, I think a lot of us know that a lot of our um, clients don't necessarily um, respond in a way, you know, you know, they have more skills beyond what this assessment score is telling you, right? And so I think to be considerate of, you know, even though an assessment may say this is where they are in this phase, but you know, if you have some you know, be able to, you're able to control their behaviors, you know, or get them to respond more, you'll see that they actually have more skills than the assessment is telling you. So I think that, you know what, there is a place, a time and place for these assessments, but I wouldn't solely rely on the results of these assessments to like, you know, solely dictate what my curriculum is going to be. Because again, um, we have to have a good understanding of behavioral control, you know, are they responding to the are we really seeing their skill set um, from these assessment scores? If not, you know, there's other things that we need to address. So I think, yes, they can be beneficial, but I wouldn't, I, I, I probably wouldn't solely rely on that. Like Jeremy says, you lack that, you know, being able to be dynamic and, and what if they present something new and you're, you're let's say, you know, the assessment says they might be um, in basic skills. Um, then you start to work with the child, you get some behavioral momentum, they understand contingency, and you realize they are far beyond that. And now you're stuck. And if you don't have a good understanding of, of curriculum and large, you know, 
long-term goals, um, does the supervisor have the skills to be able to adapt, be nimble with that curriculum? I don't know. I think we're all kind of referring to, um, we, we tend not to use those types of measurements when we're working with the kids we work with. And there's a place for them for sure. But I think it, in some ways they can be overused, unfortunately. I, I think if you start to rely on what the checklist says or, or the order of the curriculum, then I don't think we're doing the field a service. We're not training people to think for themselves. We're not training people to adapt their therapy based on what the kid is presenting in the moment. I, I think the real focus should be on um, something that Christine said earlier is the fidelity there. Are we actually hitting the target the way it's supposed to be? Because that could be leading to all sorts of misinformation, couldn't it? Um, are, are we asking ourselves the question, like Jeremy said, being, being our own self-evaluators to make sure that we've covered everything before we rely on something that's a little bit uh, tick the boxy to me? Uh, I, I think the skills we need to encourage in our staff crosses over from understanding curriculum and maybe using some of those tools to actually being a super effective therapist and having those assessment skills to know whether the kid has a skill or not and to probe and see if they're applying it in other ways that maybe the list or the, the curriculum doesn't account for. I think that's where the, the magic happens. I think that's where the, the teaching happens and the dynamicism that Jeremy was talking about happens. Well, and it, it sounds like in general, the, the problem isn't with any specific assessment. It's the over-reliance on any specific assessment. And uh, a lot of what you all are talking about is um, you can use elements or you can use parts or they have their, their uses, um, but only relying on one and overly relying on that one is when problems start to arise. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to continue this discussion, there's another question that came in that's related uh, how do you feel about a push from funders who require assessment as an indicator of progress, which leads to the selection of curriculum? I think, you know, that's a tough one. There's there's a few routes you can go, right? I think that uh, maybe we have to, in one sense, better educate the funders in terms of what should dictate progress. Right. I think, you know, that that's one route we can go. And at the same time, um, I think that there is some good information we can get from that, from, from these assessments, but then also letting them understand there may be um, some things that are missing as well. Um, and so, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone has a better answer for that, but I, I think that I wouldn't... Um, Right now, you, you're kind of at the mercy of the funders in terms of like, you know, you need to get services and they've got to pay for it. And I think there are some things that are going to correlate with a lot of your teaching. And maybe right now you kind of fit, you know, here's some of the, the programs and here's the needs I see that need to be met and do those fit with some of the funders goals as well. It's not going to completely dictate my curriculum, but can I kind of collaborate a little bit in terms of um, what they see as progress? And yes, that works with me as well, um, but I'm not going to let it completely run, you know, how I, how I set up my curriculum. And then, like I said, there might be that other approach of, can we help better, you know, educate and define what is progress and how we can 
um, show that besides these set assessments? Because I mean, look, there, there had to be a reason they had to put these rules in place, right? There has to be, we have to show that we're making progress. I understand that. And maybe that was the best way to do that at the time, but maybe we need to come up with better measures um, that truly show that type of progress. Yeah, I, I think... I, I, again, I think it's overuse. I think that we all run into that. We're, we're kind of in a bubble right here talking about these things that we're clearly passionate about and love talking about and would probably you know, bore a lot of people out of their socks unless they were sitting at the bar drinking their own alcohol at this point. Um, but I think we need to have for that type of situation a common language. So if we've got a, a set of... of um, a set of skills that we have to show progress on. Well, then it's maybe having a conversation with, I can see where you're getting this. Here's how we're going to approach it. Do those two things merge? Do those two things achieve the goal, the way that it's going to benefit the kid and also satisfy the funding sources or, or the school district or whoever it is that's come up with the goals. And it's also going back to, I, I think inside this bubble, some of the things we're talking about should be taken out and applied to those places. There needs to be better assessment. There needs to be better understanding of the individual child. And I get that it's, it's, it makes sense to me to use some of those measures that we're using and those, those measures of progress because those funding sources aren't just funding one kid, you know? And so they have to look at a much bigger picture in some ways than maybe we are when we're focused on a child that it's impacting in that moment. But I think if we do have that common conversation, there's times where recently, especially, uh, and I don't mind this at all, by the way, I think it's due diligence where we get um, the insurance companies checking on us to make sure that we're doing the things we're supposed to be doing and that the, the service is at the right prescription for their model, so to speak. Those conversations that we get to have in those peer-to-peer -peer sessions, I've actually grown to love them because it's a chance to say, I need to know where you're coming from so that we can talk about this in a way that we both understand it and so the kid's going to be impacted by it. So they're coming at us sometimes with a lot of those things you're talking about, the rules, the, the measurements, the progress needs to be stated this way, the goals need to be written this way. And then hearing, well, here's our data, here's what we're working on, here how it supports some of the things you're talking about, but here's where some of the stuff you're thinking about is missing and is really key to him continuing to move on if we're talking about a kid. So I, I think it's an ongoing evolution. What we're all living through right now is constantly changing funding sources, insurance, the curriculum. It's uh, it's complicated right now. I think, you know, like John and Christine said, like there's certainly pluses to some of those things that it's standardized and we're making sure we're showing progress. But maybe this is the before I was on autism partnership, I was a middle school teacher for a little bit. And maybe this is coming from my middle school background. But one of the drawbacks to me is it can sometimes feel like we're teaching to the test um, and that we are just trying to check as many boxes to show that we're doing something to continue to get funding. And that can sometimes lead us astray because then we're not, maybe not teaching the skills that we feel um, are more necessary, or we're not taking the time to fully generalize the skills we are teaching just so we can get to the next checkbox um, to show that we're making progress. So um, I think that's some of my uh, area of concern with it. I, I like that concern that you brought up because I think um, I, I see that 
being an issue, especially for a lot of teachers in their classrooms, they feel a lot of pressure that they're supposed to be addressing certain, you know, IEP goals or certain goals, whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, uh, a behavior analyst comes in and says, hey, we need to address this, this, and this. And they're like, yeah, but I have to hit these IEP goals. And so I can see where there's definitely that disconnect in understanding what is truly necessary for these, you know, students to, um, to improve. So I think, you know, it, it bleeds into schools and classrooms as well. I think they, teachers are put in a very difficult position um, to be able to not only, you know, understand, uh, but also how can, you know, we marry those two types of expectations, right? I've got expectations from administration that I have expectations um, from parents. Family. I have expectations from, you know, behavior interventionists, whoever it may be. Um, and it's really difficult to, um, first of all, understand what is the priority, you know, and, and how do I prioritize it and how do I stand up for whichever, you know, uh, whichever skills they need to teach. So um, I think that's a really good uh, point, Jeremy, because I think a lot, if any teachers are listening to this, they probably can really advocate okay. for that, for that issue themselves. So I'm wondering if you, I think we talked a lot about assessment today and uh, not in terms of the curriculum. And I think we'll have to have all three of you back on for a different rants on like the actual curriculum. Could you highlight some of those interesting domains or explain a little bit those domains that in the autism partnership method, such as learning how to learn skills or social skills and the emphasis, bearing in mind you only have uh, like two or three minutes to do so? Yeah, I think we hear often what the heck are learning how to learn skills. And so that's one of my favorite domains um, is there's the common language that, that we need to be thinking about. What, what are we defining with learning how to learn skills? And it's those skills that are going to allow the child to experience an education, to experience therapy, to, to grow from it and learn from it. It's all those skills that are foundational. I, I love working in that zone because if we can nail those, those skills, then it almost opens the doors to just about all the other domains that I think are really important. Um, and as these two know, um, within that domain, one of my favorite programs is matching. <laughs> so if we've got if we've got that kind of common ground that we're working on with a kid with with learning how to learn skills, and we're using something like matching, that matching program can go all the way up into the next domain and into the next domain. If we're using matching to teach them how to interact with material or to observe what somebody else is doing and, and try to imitate that social uh, skill. Um, those things all move forward and, and, and are, are informed by the learning how to learn domain, which I think is so critical. I'm going to say that I love the matching program, like John said, because that is a foundational skill. You think about it, you know, um, matching. Yeah, sure. It's identical matching. Then you go to non-identical matching. Can you match the term, the, the word pencil with the actual item? Can you match the mood with your friends? Can you match, you know, um, the, the social cues that are happening, depending on which environment you're in? I think that's a, definitely a foundational skill when we start talking about what what are those skills you guys are talking about that leads to, you know, a plethora of other skills that you could be um, um, teaching simultaneously? And I think matching is one of them. Um, and then being able to discriminate matching and also non-matching, right? I think that, you know, to counter that are two very foundational skills. Yeah. So 
I'm with you on that, John. <laughs> no discrimination. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it's great because when you start to think about it, matching is all around you and it, it's involved in your everyday life. Um, even, you know, as, as we are right now, you know, there, there's some level of matching that happens throughout the course of our day. And so I think that's where it goes from that big, big picture, little picture and how different things are informing these other things that then you're able to work on because of it. Right. Right. I'm still learning how to match kind of those nonverbal cues and the visual cues of people unmuting themselves and when to talk and when to not talk. So that's all matching guys. It matters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank you guys for coming on uh, Rants with Justin and Joe. Also, I want to congratulate you guys. You guys are all uh, co-authors on the Autism Partnership Method Social Skills Group book, which just came out, which I should say that APF does make money for, just for those people listening. But congratulations, uh, John Rafus. I never thought that a book cover from us would have soccer on it. Uh, You rocked my world when I saw that cover. (laughs) Um, You know, we will have you guys back on and something that we are doing in our uh, CU platform that's out is that we're going to have something called a Curriculum Corner. And we hope that, you know, the three of you will uh, contribute to Curriculum Corner going on the different curriculum that we have uh, and that you guys have created to share with uh, the field and families and individuals that have children diagnosed with autism. Now, before I conclude, Joe, every time I say, can we get the rants with Justin and Joe song, and you say no. So come here, guys. I brought the singers in to do it today. All right. Let's oh, hear it. Is ready? Yes. Here we go. Wait, wait, wait. Rants with yeah, Justin and Joe. Yeah. Rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah. Rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah. Final one, rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah. All right, good job. That's if that's not the most adorable the thing ever. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, uh, today's closing word, uh, if you do want CEUs for this, is going to be progress. So again, if, you, if you're just listening to learn, great. If you're listening to learn and get a CEU, just go over to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Put in the opening and closing word and ooh, CEUs too. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you, everybody. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We will see everybody in 2021 because Rants with Justin and Joe will conclude. Or not conclude. Continue. 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 (laughs) We knew it. Continue. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you all. Great to see you. Likewise. Happy holidays, guys. Happy holidays.